Welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Julia Benbrook. Super Tuesday is a week from today, and we have the perfect interview from the archives for this occasion. Our guest is Chris Wallace of Fox News Sunday. The interview was originally recorded on November 1st, 2017. Chris was in Oklahoma City as part of the Spears School of Business Executive Management Briefing Series. In our interview, Chris talks about his upbringing. Now remember, his dad was the late Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes. Chris also talked about being the moderator of one of the presidential debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And he talks about what it's like to host a Sunday morning political news program. It's a look back at the last election as Burns Hargis interviews Chris Wallace on this week's Inside OSU podcast. Actually, of course, I'm sure like everybody else, I was a big fan of your dad's. And, uh, Thank you, sir. And uh, it was fun to watch you then follow in his footsteps. Uh, and you really did that. I, I read a little bit about you have a quite distinguished academic background with a degree from Harvard and were accepted to Yale for law school. That's true, but, but you, I didn't go to Yale did. Law School. You no. did. Was it Yale or, or law, law School? It was law school. I was about a week away from starting Yale Law School. I actually would have been in Hillary Clinton's class, so who knows, I could have been the President of the United go. States. Uh, but instead I decided I really didn't want to spend three years in school and I went to work for the Boston Globe instead and spent four wonderful years there as a newspaper reporter, covered City Hall. Just on a little personal background, your dad was on the air for many, many years. I assume you grew up in New York. Well, first Chicago uh, and then New York. And uh, did you get to see much of him? Well, it, it, it's complicated. Uh, you've asked a simple question that's going to have a slightly complicated answer. My folks got divorced when I was about a year old. Interestingly enough, about when I was nine, my mother married another television person. I don't know, not that she was interested in TV particularly, a wonderful man named Bill Leonard who worked for CBS News. Bill Leonard ended up becoming the president of CBS News and in fact became my father's boss. Oh so that was, that was interesting, and, and I'm very good at keeping secrets because one of them would always tell me something and then they'd say, now, you can't tell that to your other father. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a vault. You tell me something, I'm not going to tell other people. I understand. Uh, so when did you first get into television? Well, as I say, after college, I went to work for newspapers for about three, four years at the Boston Globe. Uh, but, you know, I don't know whether it was in my blood or what, but, but I, somebody offered me a job working for the local CBS station in Chicago, an associate of actually my stepfather's, and I decided it was something I needed to see whether I could do, and once I was there, I, well, I, had, was, I was on my way. You had the genes. Well, yeah. And, and you, you, you worked for at least... You've worked for three networks at least, haven't you? Uh, NBC, CBS, and now Fox. Yeah, you tell all this, it makes it sound like I can't keep a job. But yes, <laughs> uh, I worked local for CBS and then local for NBC. I never worked for CBS nationally for obvious reasons, because I just thought there would be a cloud, it would appear to be nepotism. So I went to work for NBC in Washington, spent about 11 years there. My, the highlight was I got to cover Ronald Reagan as the chief White House correspondent for NBC for six years. Had a wonderful forced education, went all over the world with Reagan, all the Reagan-Gorbachev summits to Tiananmen Square in 1984 when he met Deng Xiaoping. Uh, then I went to ABC uh, in 1989 and worked for about 13 years there 
primarily on a primetime magazine show called Primetime with Sam Donaldson and Diane Sawyer was the main substitute host on Nightline. And then in 2003, I came to Fox, and I've been there ever since, so 14 years there. Did you host uh, Meet the Press? I am. You've done a little bit of research here. I am the only person who has ever been the host of two network Sunday morning talk shows. I hosted Meet the Press for about a year and a half in the late 80s, and now I have hosted Fox News Sunday for 14 years. This year you, you took on a, well last year I guess, so you took on a, another role in uh, actually uh, being moderator in a debate. Yeah, I had yeah. done a number of debates in the past, but they were primary debates, the Republican Party, all the candidates out on the stage. But in September of 2016, a little over a year ago, the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a bipartisan commission, invited me to moderate the third and final presidential debate. Uh, I was the first, and to this point still, the only Fox journalist who's ever been asked to moderate a presidential debate as opposed to a primary debate. And I did it, uh, not to say that I remember, but on October 19th, <laughs> which was 21, uh, 20 days, uh, two weeks and six days, before one of them was gonna be elected president. It was the final debate, and I'm proud to say 80 million people watched. It was the third most watched debate in history. Well, and it, unlike other moderators, moderators usually get criticized for oh, they always being a homer for one side or the other. Right. But you really didn't, and you even had uh, competitors uh, praising your No, it was interesting job. because I went in First of all, there was a lot of questioning a Fox person. I can tell you the Clinton campaign immediately wanted me taken off. The Commission on Presidential Debates, which is bipartisan, said, no, we've named him. You don't get to choose the moderators. Uh, they stuck by that under uh, some pressure. I went in thinking, well, if I get equally criticized by both sides, that means I did a pretty good job. And I'll never forget, the debate was in Las Vegas, and I was on the plane in the middle seat in Southwest Airlines with my wife flying back from Las Vegas the day after, and I had sprung for Wi-Fi, so I was seeing the thing, reviews as they come in, and I turned to Lorraine as we were over Kansas, and I said, honey, something's happened I hadn't prepared for. She said, what's that? I said, I got praised by both sides. <laughs> I mean, I was, Oprah Winfrey said what a good job I did, and a variety of, of other people. Well, what so, do you attribute that to? I, I, well, how I think, do you prepare for something like that. Well, I, here's the thing. I, I hated doing the last debate because they, they asked me in early September, and I had six weeks to stew. And even though I've done everything there is to do in the business, I felt tremendous pressure and, quite frankly, a lot of anxiety. I mean, there were moments when it just seemed to overwhelm me. But there was an advantage, and that was that when the two presidential debates were over, there were 10 days before my debate, and I looked at what had been covered, and the thing that struck me, and I also went back and watched and, and, watched and read old debates going back to Nixon-Kennedy in 1960, was that there had been so much talk about junk. For instance, the, the second presidential debate, they had spent almost the first half hour talking about the Access Hollywood tape. Now, it's a legitimate issue, but is it worth a third of the debate? No, of course not. It's worth five, eight minutes. And, and as I looked, I thought, what hasn't been discussed yet? This is after two presidential debates, three hours, 180 minutes, they had not talked about the Supreme Court, kind of a big subject, uh, gun control, abortion, immigration, which was one of the big subjects in the campaign, had not mentioned a word about debt or entitlements. Uh, and so I, I resolved, 
I was going to go back the old-fashioned and do a highbrow debate. That was how I was going to dis distinguish myself about real issues that would affect people's lives and the kind of thing that a president has to decide. And apparently, people loved it. By then, that late, Trump, the conventional wisdom was that he was history. What did you, did you sense that at that time? I, th I, I even read that he thought he was history. Well, I, I certainly, history may be a little bit strong, but certainly that he was a decided underdog, and which I think persisted through the whole campaign right up into and including election day. But, you know, my feeling was, and it's my feeling generally, that when you're in that kind of a role particularly, but it just generally, I, I, one of the mistakes I think that reporters make sometimes is that we get into the game. We want to come out in the field and be a player. We're not. We're the umpire. We're the one calling balls and strikes. My feeling was these are two candidates. In, 19, in 20 days, one of them is going to be the next president. I was, you know, I'm, this is comparison shopping. Things can change in three weeks. In fact, things did change in three weeks. Just do your job, ask questions, be equally fair, equally tough on both sides, and you'll have done what you're supposed to do. So now the $64,000 question that Hillary tried to answer in her book, what happened? I, I think it basically, my view of this is, and in terms of polling, in terms of exit polls, you have to have a model, your, your sense of who's gonna vote and what numbers. And I think the polls and even the exit polls on election day were based on a model that assumed a big turnout of minorities, African Americans and Hispanics, and maybe not so much of a turnout by uh, you'd call the Trump base, white working class, people from rural areas, people from Rust Belt areas. That was a model. It turned out to be the wrong model. It just isn't the way the world turned on election day. And we, I think, vastly overestimated how minorities were going to turn out and vastly underestimated the, the turnout in some of the groups that I mentioned that were pro-Trump. You know, the overall poll, polls were pretty accurate. I mean, they had Clinton winning by about 2%. Nationally, she won by 2%, but they were very wrong in a lot of the key swing states like Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Take us backstage a little bit uh, with your show. Uh, how uh, is, You have regulars on the show, of course, it seems like, most, well, of, you're most of the time. Analysts. Yeah, panelists. Yeah, I mean, we, we have what I'd call a repertory company. We probably have a dozen people that we call in as, as panelists, and you know it'll, we'll mix and match them, and sometimes we'll bring in somebody else. In terms of the guests, they're new and different every week. Right, and that... I, I, when I had my little show, we, we had to wait late in the week, usually, to doesn't see what was going to happen. Doesn't it drive you nuts? Yeah, it does. It, drive, it really well, does. Well, so I compare it, and I don't know that there were other shows. I compare it to you're in Washington, D.C., you all, you, there were five hosts all wanting to throw a dinner party on Sunday morning, which is an odd time to throw a dinner party, and you all want the same guests. So you can't imagine a more difficult situation. And it used to be, I have to say, everybody's gotten worse on it. And frankly, the Trump White House is terrible about this. I'm going to just be honest about it. Frankly, the Obama White House was bad. The Trump people are worse. It used to be, we, if the White House was going to put somebody out, we'd know about it Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Now we never know from the Trump White House if they're going to put somebody out till Friday. Uh, and sometimes, 
Saturday, and you're preparing, you're in earnest preparing on Saturday, so, you know, you're sitting there trying to arrange this dinner party, and you don't know if anybody's going to show up. You know somebody will show up because you're going to get somebody there yeah. to eat the food, but uh, it, it's one of the, it's the part of the show I hate, I, I, well, let me put it this way, I like the least, which is the booking side. It's, it's important, I think it's the most important part, but it's not fun. And sometimes the guests appear on multiple shows. Well, yeah, you, you prefer that not, and and also one of the things, and I really believe this strongly, is that the velocity with which news happens and we consume news, just generally, has sped up, and the metabolism, the news metabolism is a lot faster. It used to be if a story was big on Tuesday or Wednesday, you could absolutely predict, well, that's what you're going to want to talk about on Sunday. Nowadays, something happens, I mean, for instance, the Russia investigation is worth sitting here this week. The Russia uh, announcement of the indictments and the, and the guilty plea happened on Monday. Stop the presses. Well, wait a minute. Now, as you and I sit here, it's Wednesday. We've uh, had the terror attack in, in New York. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to have the rollout of the tax plan. Friday, the president leaves on his trip to Asia. You tell me what people are going to want to talk about and hear about on Sunday. It's, it's, you're like, it's a moving target. Uh, Chris, your, your address today is entitled uh, America Under Donald Trump, A View from Washington. What is the view? Well, it's fractured, and you know, that's the view in Washington. I suspect it's the view here in Oklahoma and across the country. Uh, first of all, there are some people who, who love Donald Trump, and there are some people who hate Donald Trump. And even the people that like Donald Trump, I find, have mixed views. Uh, you know, I think that, that there are things about him that they admire. I think they admire his sense of command and leadership. Uh, I, the, I think they admire the idea of trying to get the economy going, cutting back on regulation, pushing hard for tax reform. I think that even some of his biggest supporters, the sense I get, are frustrated with some of his behavior, which I think they feel in, in a sense, he can be his own worst enemy. And this is a guy who's got a lot of enemies. But, you know, that sometimes with his tweets, I don't find many people very supportive of the tweets, that he steps on his own story, steps on his own initiative. Uh, and steps on his own AIDS yes. pronouncements. Yeah, he's, he, it's not the easiest job working, uh, working for the president. And, and you know, I've seen, uh, there have been a few times myself where I have thought, I remember when he made his speech to a joint session of Congress last February, and I remember saying on the air, I think, feel like this is the day that Donald Trump became president. And then, then a few days later, he put out the tweet that said that, that uh, President Obama had wiretapped him in the White House. has been absolutely no proof of that. I just think sometimes he gets in his own way, and if he weren't, if he were a little, a little bit more disciplined, then the good things about him could, could just sail through easily. Well, in the tweets uh, that come out, that, that's got to be hard on your show because you could have it all planned even up to Sunday morning when he tweets. We have somebody who is assigned, I, I, I'm not kidding, full time, just starting at 6 in the morning, because that seems to be about when he gets up, or at least when he starts tweeting. Check the tweets. Let me know the tweet. I, don't, I never want to go into the show at 9 o'clock Eastern time not knowing everything he has tweeted that day. And it can dramatically change the questions you ask and how you shape the interview. 
Our thanks to Chris Wallace for his unique perspective on the 2016 elections. And our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Julia Benbrook, and we'll see you next week.